Well, as we look at this passage of Scripture, as we've gone through the first four seals, which revealed the four riders, the politician who is always bent on conquest, I want more, I want bigger territory, I want more power, and all leaders in history, all leaders in history have a sinful ambition to expand their power base. That's the rider on the white horse. In a final way, just before the return of Christ, he will have a final manifestation in the man of sin. And behind that ambition, that political ambition, is always bloodshed. Always. Who wants other people to take what they've got? And so what comes in the wake of the conqueror is war. Mars. Riding a red horse. And what follows that? It's always the same. It's famine. It's scarcity. It's plague. All of those things with the black horse. And finally, in the wake of all of that that comes inevitably in the wake of war, particularly where a nation has been invaded and where battles have been fought on it, and I think they are particularly of Europe, particularly Eastern Europe, where many wars have been fought, and the desolations, the famines, all of those things, finally what comes is a horse that's a pale horse. And that paleness is designed to evoke in our minds what a lifeless corpse looks like. That's why the, that, that horse is the color of a lifeless corpse. And he's followed by the grave. Wow. Now we see yet another scene in this scene of the scroll with seven seals. He opens the fifth seal. And what is revealed are the souls of those who have been slaughtered for the cause of Christ. And they're under the altar. What altar? Well, this is interesting. You know that the tabernacle and the temple had two altars. There was the bronze altar where sacrifices were offered. And then inside the temple, inside the tabernacle, was a golden altar for the offering of incense. Which altar is this? Well, in the heavenly in the heavenly temple, there's no need for a bronze altar. Certainly at this point not, because the one that is opening these seals is none other than the one about whom we read in chapter 5. He's the lamb that was slain. He's the lamb that has once for all time shed his blood. The Lord Jesus Christ sacrificed himself for you and for me once for all time by shedding his blood. There is no need for that altar in the temple of heaven anymore. What we have here is the altar of incense that's inside the, the holy place. And it's that altar of incense that is just in front of the curtain that separates the holy place from the most holy place where the Ark of the Covenant's held. And so what do we see in this heavenly vision? We see those who have died for the cause of Christ, for the word of their testimony. And I want you to reflect with me about that for a moment. I know in a very literal way, it's directly applicable to the Christians who were persecuted and put to death under the Roman emperors, particularly under Diocletian. 
These people were butchered and slaughtered for the cause of Christ. But I want to throw out another thing for you. It's the testimony they maintain. And we read this in Revelation chapter 6 and verse 9. He sees under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. I want you to reflect on something for a moment. Do people who have never been born again love Jesus? The answer is no. What happens when you begin to talk about the Lord Jesus Christ with earnestness to somebody who doesn't know God? Does it make them happy? Apart from the work of the Holy Spirit, it makes them angry. If you want a picture of that, turn with me, if you will, back to the book of Acts, uh, chapter 8. Acts, chapter 8. And what do we read here? To give you the page number. Acts, chapter 8. As Stephen, the first Christian martyr, is witnessing to the Jewish people who were the leaders... And remember, Stephen is a Jewish person himself. And what do we find here? In page 1704, that's Acts 751, you stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears, you are just like your fathers. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your fathers did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was put into effect through angels, but have not obeyed it. Verse 54. Here's the picture. Verse 54, when they heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this, they covered their ears. And yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. I want you to understand something. Good moral people don't get persecuted. I'll say it again. Good moral people don't get persecuted. Mind your business. Ignore what's going on in the world around you. Just be a good person. Pay your taxes. Observe the laws. And be polite. Open the door for ladies and old people like me. And uh, just be a good person. Good people aren't persecuted. In some circumstances they may be. Because good people are not a threat to sinners. But people who say something about the Lord Jesus, they are saying something that infuriates people until people come to be drawn by the Holy Spirit. That's exactly what's happening here. This is the very first Christian martyr. And what happened the moment that Stephen dies? Well, let's see it. Verse 59. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. What happened? 
At the very moment Stephen fell asleep, he was clothed with a white robe, which is the robe of conquest. It's the robe of victory. And he is immediately transported in his spirit to the very throne of God. And before that throne, to the golden altar of incense. And his prayer changes. Think about it. What's he praying while he's on earth? Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And I submit to you, his prayer was answered on earth. Look back at verse 58, the last sentence of verse 58. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. I submit to you that if Stephen had died cursing and calling down God's judgments on those all around him, Saul of Tarsus would not have been saved. Now you say, wait a minute, isn't the elect? Of course. And of course he would be saved. And that's the mystery of the absolute sovereignty of God. And yet that sovereignty it ordains the means to that end and not just the end itself. But I submit to you that if Stephen had just said, All you people, just go to hell. I'm suffering. You're inflicting on me unbelievable pain and suffering. I can't stand it anymore. May God send you all to hell. But you think that's what he felt like saying at points? Calling down the wrath and judgment of God? But what does he do? Verse 59. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he said this, he fell asleep. He prayed for those around him. How many of those who were around him stoning him became Christians? I don't know, but I submit to you a lot of them did. Because the early church was filled with Jewish people who witnessed the profound things that happened. And after the death of Stephen, the church then spread out from Jerusalem into the rest of Judea and into Samaria and then to the uttermost parts of the earth. Stephen's prayer is heard. He's pleading with the Lord for the lost. And isn't that like the Spirit of the Lord Jesus in the Gospel of Luke? As Jesus is dying on the cross, as he's suffering unbelievable pain and agony and suffering, knowing that at any moment all he has to do is say, Father, send me 12 legions of angels to clean this city out of all these wicked, godless people who've taken it over and corrupted your way. Do you think he was tempted to do that? I think he was. Don't you know, he said, that I can call on my Father and He will send more than 12 legions of angels. You remember what one angel did to the Assyrian army when Hezekiah prayed? One angel wiped out about 180,000 Assyrian soldiers. Have you ever thought about the tragedy of Calvary? The tragedy of Calvary would have been if Jesus had done that. If He had said, Father... Please rescue me now. These ungrateful wretches are causing me to suffer in indescribable ways. Instead, what does he do? He prays, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. 
Jesus' dying words, the dying words of the first martyr, of that first Christian soul under the altar of God in heaven, pleading with the Lord to spare. Does Stephen's prayer change in heaven? And I submit, in a way, it does. Page 1920, going back there to Revelation chapter 6 and verse 9. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. They called out in a loud voice. How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Now let's see if we can put these two prayers together. The first thing we can say is that in heaven, every prayer is a perfect prayer. In heaven, every prayer that is uttered to God is absolutely pure and without any element of sin whatsoever. Can I say that about my prayers even today? No. I need the blood of Jesus to take away the sinful element even in my best works. Think about it. All our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. I need the blood of Jesus today on the 401st anniversary of the founding of America. I need the blood of Jesus today so that my prayers are righteous prayers so that my preaching is righteous preaching. I've never preached a sermon that I could say, well, boy, that was it. And the moment sometimes I think that, the, very quickly after that, I remember something and, oh, God, why did I say that? I've never preached a perfect sermon. I've never prayed a perfect prayer. Everything that I do on this earth is contaminated by myself, by my sinful self, by my narcissistic self, my, by my self-absorbed self. And you know what? That's true for all of us, not just me. But in heaven when we pray, we're righteous, thoroughly righteous, we no longer have a sinful nature in heaven. We're no longer pulled by our sinful nature. We're no longer influenced by demons. We're no longer influenced by the wicked ways of the world in heaven. So I'll say this. Stephen's prayer that needed the blood of Jesus to be received as a righteous prayer. In heaven, Stephen prays as an absolutely righteous man without any hint of sin whatsoever. Now I want you to see something very profound here. In the prayers of the saints in heaven, without any contamination of sin, they're not pleading for God to get this individual or get that individual. They're pleading with God to correct the injustices of this world. And we think about things like, for example, Adolf Hitler. Adolf Hitler evidently Shot and killed his, he got married to his girlfriend at last. And then killed her and killed his dog and killed himself. And if that's all there is, where's justice? How could a man who did what Adolf Hitler did to so many millions of people, does he just get off scot-free? You know, if you're an atheist, you've got to be an angry person. 
Then think about it. If you're an atheist, you've got to be an angry person because people do terrible things throughout history from Claudius going back to Octavian and Tiberius and certainly Nero and Little Boots, Caligula and all those that came after them. They did all these horrible things. What about all of the great villains of history? If that's all there is, then why not just put the bullet in your head? And if that ends it, if that ends it, where's justice? Don't we cry out for justice in our heart of hearts? I was praying on the phone with a man who used to be a member of my congregation. He now weighs about 500 pounds. He's confined to a bed in Florida. And he said, I want you to pray for me because I'm hurting so much. He had come down with lice and they had to transport him from his house to a hospital and shave him from stem to stern. And he had bed sores all over him. And he said, Bob, I hurt so much. Please pray for my pain to come to an end. And as I talked to him, I prayed about it. And I said, Lord, I pray that he won't find the pain of his body to end at death. I pray he will find the pain of his body to end at death and not to go on forever. And he immediately knew what I was praying. And he shared how another member of my congregation back there 46 years ago, who was in junior high then and is now a Christian elder, have been talking to him about the danger of going to hell. Because nobody goes to heaven without repentance and faith. Going on forever? You mean that that man could in this life live in excruciating agony from pain and then at the moment of death, if he hasn't truly repented, have that pain go on forever and ever and ever without let up at all? Yes, that's a burden to me. I've been praying for him. I'd like you to pray for him. His name is Mark. Pray for him. The prayers in heaven are not prayers for vengeance on individuals, but it's a prayer for justice. Because the world, if this is all there is, if this is all there is, and Hitler can just get out of the whole thing by taking poison, shooting himself, I think he did that. I think he did both. And then they burned his body so that the, that the Russian troops couldn't desecrate it. Is that it? Joe Stalin just have a heart attack and lie there with a stroke and everybody's afraid to go in and do anything because they think he's faking it to find out if he's really dead or not. You never wanted to be invited to supper by Joe Stalin because he enjoyed having somebody at the table taken out and killed. Do you mean that Joe Stalin just suffered and that was it? Suffered for an hour or two with a stroke, unable to move, and then it's over forever? If that's all there is, if you're an atheist, there is no justice in the world. But in heaven, where people are perfect, where their prayers are perfect, what they're crying out for is God to right the wrongs of the world. Don't you want to join them in that prayer? In one way, yes. 
How long, O Lord, holy and true? How long, O Lord, holy and true? When you read the newspaper, when you listen to the news, when you watch the news, isn't your reaction similar to mine and to most people's? How can this be going on? How can there be a God who's just and all this stuff go on in the world? Well, there is a God who is just. And that God who is just is ruling the world through the prayers of His saints. And He's answering the prayers of His saints, the holy prayers of His saints in heaven. Because what happens in the wake of their prayers? All you have to do is read what follows. There is coming a time of justice. But I'm going to say this. For people that I know and love in this world who don't know Jesus, I don't pray for justice. Why? Because if God gave you and gave me justice, the floor of this church would open up and we would fall into a burning hell. Don't ever pray for justice in this world. Pray for God's mercy on lost people because there really is a hell. It is eternal. And it's so dreadful that if a person, my friend Mark, found himself in hell, he would give all that he had for a moment to go back to that hospital bed with all those painful, excruciating sores just for a moment so he could repent of his sins and cast himself on God's mercy in Christ. Today is a day to pray prayers for the forgiveness of others. Today is a day to pray and plead with God for loved ones. Are all of your loved ones saved? I pray they are. I can't say that all of mine are. And so I pray for them. And so I plead for them. So I stand with Jesus and with the first Christian martyr, Stephen. And I plead with God, please don't hold their sins against them. We have a world to win for Christ, and we win it through our prayers. And we join arm in arm with the saints above who pray with perfect prayers for God to right the wrongs of the world. But me, I want a little more time. I want a little more time, as we see there in verse 11, to see people come to know Jesus, for there's nothing in all the world that's better than that. And if a person becomes the wealthiest, most powerful person in all the world and fails to know the Lord, there's nothing worse than that. You see, the blood of Jesus speaks better things than that of Abel's blood. The blood of Jesus cries out, forgive them, forgive them. Now's that time. May we pray. Lord, I pray for myself as I walk with Sandy, as I visit with neighbors, as I interact, as I share the gospel as Sandy and I did Friday evening with a man. And then driving him home and realizing how much self-righteousness he has. He believes in Jesus in one way, but he's never repented. He simply is judging himself as superior to other people. Because he can endure so much pain and most people can't. 
He's even sat in this church before. Lord, as I think about all the lost people I know, I plead with you. Lord, would you grant them the gift of repentance unto life so that they may turn from their sins and their own righteousness and cast themselves on your mercy in Christ. And if there's anyone today who's here who has never come to that point of looking at himself or herself and saying, Lord, I'm filthy, I'm vile, I'm hideous. Lord, wash my sins away. Change me. Lord, I pray that today would be that day. For Jesus' sake, amen.